I spent all weekend with a stomach virus, a Gilmore Girls marathon, and tedious graphic novel work of filling in every single speech balloon in my 300-something page book. Wow. That's, uh, (laughs) doesn't sound good. It was not. I had a belly full of Gatorade and not much else. At least you watched Gilmore Girls. You like that. I fucking love it. So if I'm very, like, fast-talking, sassy, making too many pop culture references, that's why. Like, outdated pop culture references? (laughs) Even for the time, they had some super outdated ones. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) But today, we're doing listener questions, right? Heck yeah. Yeah, we'll be checking in with the best with the best audience we could ask for oh for sure love those guys our first question comes from johnny blaze which i hope that's your real name or maybe you're just referencing isn't that like a comic book guy (laughs) uh maybe i i mean it's a cool nickname if that's your nickname that's a sweet name that's dope either way everyone knows the party gets started when johnny blaze comes in (laughs) oh yeah he brings the best blunts (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so johnny says i've been struggling with how to conceptualize different classes whose dynamics and interests are in a seemingly more gray area than boss and worker for example the foreman who isn't paid a lot better than a rank and file but whose piecework rate compels them to speed at the conveyor belt of the wage workers is this a boss certainly has hiring and firing power but they don't have capital so where they fall into the class dynamic What about a white-collar worker at Nike who designs the new shoe in a North American office that cheap blue-collar laborers in Southeast Asia produce? Are they the same class? And then, lastly, perhaps having capital could define the class boundaries, but what about investing in stocks? Isn't there money being used to grow money? Does that not shift their personal interest to be aligned with the preservation and success of the market and private enterprise? Should I take it easier on my friends who are invested in crypto? I'm going to go ahead and answer that one with a no. (laughs) That last bit, at least, I know about. (laughs) Well, let's take a look. Yes, crypto people may be annoying, but let's take a look at the class analysis here (laughs) and say, okay, well, what would we, what do we think about this from like a Marxist perspective? All right, break it down. So it's kind of a spectrum, which I know you might like. I do. I love a spectrum. (laughs) First of all, class is all about how you relate to the means of production, meaning how you make your living, basically. There's two big categories to that, and we've discussed them on the show before. If you make your living selling your labor, broadly speaking, you're a worker, a proletarian. This means, you know, you don't own the means of production. So like capital, private property, stuff that you make a profit with. You don't have that. Or you don't have that insufficient qualities to make a living off of it. All right, so the other category is you make your living owning the means of production. If you're in that category, you're a capitalist. You're a boss, the bourgeoisie. That's you. Uh, So that means, you know, you're making your living through the profits of that capital. All right. Points to Johnny Blaze for paying attention because, like, he's clearly got a grasp on the basics. Yes. Yep. That's the basic (laughs) dichotomy. You get an A. The raising good points is there's some kind of gray areas in that. And uh, let's take on the working class first, so because there's kind of a spectrum, subcategories, that sort of thing. So within the working class, well, even below the proletariat, you have the lumpen proletariat, people who've been like pushed out altogether 
from the legitimate economy. Uh, so they're surviving by whatever means necessary. They're oftentimes criminalized in various ways, that sort of thing. And we've mentioned on the show before that like Marx was not keen on these guys at all. He wasn't great. In historical terms, that might be like straight up peasants. Peasants are an, a, they're, they're kind of a different. Because mm. I guess peasants could have farms. Yeah. Right. And in fact, they kind of, uh, historically speaking, would own land. So they, they would be like a weird form of owning the means of production, but having to pay that to someone. So they're a different thing. So maybe in uh, Mark's time, it was just like. Like wastrels and waifs. Wastrels, vagabonds, criminals, <laughs> uh, homeless people of various sorts. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, all this sort of thing. I mean, in modern times, would, would this translate to something similar, like the prison population yes. and, and houseless people? Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, and this has been treated differently by different Marxists over time. For instance, uh, Mao, um, a, a lot of other communists, uh, the Black Panther Party, uh, were uh, more in favor of seeing the revolutionary potential in and, and directing the uh, Lupin proletariat as a useful class in the revolution. Yeah, I'm on that boat too. Uh, above them, so you have the regular, what we think of as a run-of-the-mill worker, right? People selling their labor for wages, salaries even, commission. I mean, it doesn't. you don't have to be particular about it. Selling your labor, yeah. that's how you get by. Uh Factory workers, Uber drivers, miners, coders, teachers, service workers, housekeeping, like regular people. All the Richard Scary jobs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then above them, though still in the working class, is what we would call the labor aristocracy. Ew, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> well, here we can, so we can think of Johnny's example of the foreman and the line workers. And this looks different for different people, supervisors, managers, whatever. These guys have, uh, they're paid better usually, better benefits. Like you mentioned, the the power, they have more power usually uh, than regular workers. But they still sell their labor. They still make a living selling their time, right? Uh, Whether that's wage labor or their salary or what have you, they don't own their, you know, their time of the day, they're working for a boss too, but they're bribed basically in this way to feel more like the bourgeoisie. And oftentimes they're specifically tasked with enforcing the exploitation that the bourgeoisie are doing. They're not, you know, the CEO doesn't roll in and breathe down your neck and say, you know, you got to hit those metrics. Yeah. He's got his enforcers. He's got, yeah. He got people to do that. Johnny mentions piecework rate which is like making enough stuff per hour, basically. Lots of people deal with metrics of various sorts. Teachers, we call it data, but KPIs, whatever that you have to do. Don't say that word. It's after eight o'clock. I don't have to hear that (laughs) acronym right now. Yeah, it's it's all bullshit. But that's that's a big part of what managers, what the labor aristocracy enforces. They think of these guys as like, you know, the, the dogs of the capitalists that are, you know, doing their jobs for them. Yeah. And the fact that they have hiring power, which means they're going to try to get the cheapest people for the most work. Like they're, Mm -hmm. they're actively doing things that exploit people. Yes. And they're interesting though, because I mean, because of technically how they are paid, they are workers. 
they just have kind of a capitalist mentality a lot of times because they are co-opted to be on their side. Yeah, they've been rewarded for it. And mm-hmm. I, I think it's tempting when you first learn Marx just to be like, oh, it's, yeah, it is super black and white. You're a worker, you're a capitalist. And then, you know, once you start thinking about how it applies, you're like, yeah, that is more of a spectrum. And I don't know, I, I feel kind of funny about it because on one hand, I'm like, well, it'd be great if we like simplified it and just said everyone's a worker. That way we have more of that like cross class solidarity sort of thing and just be like, yeah, fuck it. We're all on the same side here. But I think it's important to understand like it's going to take more convincing for people who are in this class because they have something to lose. Yeah, it's a good, it's good. It's got a good explanatory power to it. Helps you understand things better. It's why it's really hard to trust like rich people. (laughs) (laughs) And and I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm, laugh about it but it's true like whenever i find out that someone's in that scenario i'm like i don't know if i can talk to you about this stuff because like you have something to lose i want to take something from you and yeah most people aren't cool with that <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a lot tied up and there's a reason why the manifesto ends so you have nothing to lose but your chains that's a pretty important part of the class <laughs> exactly now that's uh, almost domestically because if you zoom out you know take the global perspective Uh, The labor aristocracy could be applied to most workers in imperial core countries, in the imperialist countries like the United States and and Great Britain and all that, um, compared to the global periphery, compared compared to like the global south. Real quick, I'm picturing imperial core countries as like a sweet but evil looking satin (laughs) bomber jacket that has like an evil looking Bowser ass castle on the back. (laughs) Just like imperial core countries. (laughs) Nice. Ooh, but we could change country so it's spelled like the bad word. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry, everyone. Uh, Sure, now we all have that image. (laughs) Enjoy. Enjoy your Bowser-ass jacket. Biden walking around with one of those. (laughs) He's just, like, making obscene hand gestures. Well, the typical meme with him with the aviators and the ice cream cone. (laughs) Exactly, and he's wearing an Imperial Court Countries shirt. (laughs) Anyway... Uh, what about us and our cool jackets? So, yeah, most workers in the U.S., like Johnny mentioned, the white-collar design worker at Nike, most workers like that and in other developed countries are, are paid enough to maintain a standard of living far above the workers in the rest of the world in the global south, like the workers in the Nike's factories overseas. The, this isn't because, like, the capitalists are just like, here, let me pay you out of, like, my generosity. I'm going to take food off my table to do that. And it's not because they're doing more work. No. God, they're doing less work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they're, they're taking that, you know, food off of someone's table, someone far away who they're, they're getting super profits is what we call it from hyper exploitation in those uh, in the global south. And they use this to, you know, I mean, they're stealing more from other people to give to their labor aristocracy to kind of to, to in a similar way to the domestic situation to bribe them to bribe let's be honest here to bribe all of us into supporting or at least looking the other way when it comes to imperialism yeah and it, it's fascinating me how people willfully ignore this i i just People are going to think I'm like have a hard on for destroying small businesses or something. <laughs> but I, I just, you're like Molly Hatchet or whatever from Prohibition days. You yeah, just go Scarra. up into small businesses. What is destroying people like jet, jet ski rentals and 
all sorts of shit. I'm just like, no. And then that and charities, I'm just fucking them up. No, but I was just going to repeat our point we've made several times on the show, which is that there is this, there is this disconnect between seeing these like global horrors. One, you have now the option just to tune out. You can just fucking go watch one of the millions of shows available for streaming and just not engage with it. You'll never live long enough to watch them all. <laughs> There's so much. Which troubles me for some reason, but Same, it does. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a great pleasure in stopping consuming something. Like, I've stopped, I started, like, not finishing books that I don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just being like, no, they're just repeating themselves. I don't have to do this to myself. Yeah, I Recommend. do that in articles all the time, I guess. I was like, oh, nope, I understand this. Moving on. <laughs> There's a great joy in ditching. Anyway, but no, my point was you can either tune out or if you look at it, they're going to find ways to try to blame you, the consumer, by like, oh, well, you need to shop ethically. You need to mm. shop small. Or they do the same thing with climate change. Like, you personally need to change your habits so we can solve this problem. Yeah. It's like this big, like, diversion tactic to, like, look anywhere but at the big evil monster in the room. <laughs> this is actually <laughs> It's the meme fault. where you have the ostrich there and it's imperialism and he's got the, like, the soda. And he's like, what do you got? Wait, you know that meme? No, I'm looking it up. Ostrich meme. Or it's an emu or something. It might be an emu. Hold on. Does he have a soda? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't tell. So what do you got? Consumer choices? Oh, what you got there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember that one. You should have said the iCarly ostrich meme. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, that's I okay. I what it was from. <laughs> I only I know meme. tangentially. That's great. So, yeah, those are the distinctions within the working class. Yeah, and like, to be fair, like, I'm absolutely part of that, you know, the white collar area. And it's interesting, like, I was reading this advice column that someone was saying, like, well, I have a daughter who just took a job for Facebook, and I feel weird about it. And, you know, I I just think they're just such an evil company and blah, blah, blah. And the advice columnist was like, what do you want them to do about it? They're just trying to get a job. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> what would be better is if, like, the person who wrote in, like, works at Raytheon or something. <laughs> oh, just, yeah, right? The NSA. They work for, like, like, a healthcare can't... corporation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, yeah, they're just, like, I, uh, they're just trying to survive, man. I don't think you can, like, shit on them for that. And I, I think it's tempting to want to do that. Like, oh, you work at a big company. You, you must, like... <laughs> be evil yourself but it's also like you're just trying to survive you know yeah yeah and i think that still that kind of class distinction though of like are they kind of in management they're a little more suspect it's still not about good or bad you can still like you know convince people in those different classes to be a part of the revolutionary struggle it's you know it's maybe just there's a little more built in a little more like you said a little more to lose it's a little harder to do that. Do they drink that corporate Kool-Aid is really the question. Are they, yeah. you know, constantly talking about our values or whatever and just like yeah, we all had like a chill boss though. You know, not like mm-hmm. a boss bosses and capitalist boss, but we've had a chill manager just like I just show up, man. I don't care. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, all I have to say, it's possible to be a decent manager. Mhm. So, on the other side of the coin, you got the bourgeoisie, right? Uh. At the top you have the proper bourgeoisie this is you know your monopoly man i mean this is what you think about (laughs) (laughs) these are like those 70 guys who are causing climate change that's them (laughs) 
Yeah, these guys. So below them, though, you have a lot of people who should be considered petty bourgeoisie. Uh, now, this is it can be spelled either way. It can be spelled petty as in petty bitch, right? <laughs> okay. Or petite without the E on the end, like it, French. Petite. That, that's what it comes from. Like a petite four, uh, which is like a type of pastry, I think. Yeah, that's the same word. Uh, <laughs> we should call it petty theft. Yes, that's what it just comes from that. It's a it literally means small bourgeoisie. Okay. You know, or small capitalist. Uh, and this means you know, this is a weird category, but it includes a lot of people. It's people who are not hired or exploited by capitalists. We're not talking your managers or whatever people working for a wage. We're talking people who are not employed in that way, but who also don't make their living mainly by exploiting workers themselves. This could include a lot of different people, independent artisans making their own shit, selling their own shit. The self-employed people of in any, in any way, uh, lawyers in independent practice, uh, people who run a small business alone or with their family. Like freelance stuff. Yeah, but truly freelance stuff. So not like, I'm a freelance Uber driver because my contract <laughs> says, because like you're really an employee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or small family farms or whatever. Even small businesses that employ maybe an employee or two could be in this category if they mostly are making their living through their own labor rather than the labor that they're robbing from their employee, which is still helping them, but it's not the main source of their of their income. So it's kind of broad. It's a broad class, including a lot of people, but it's also kind of transitory or tenuous because they could grow. They oftentimes grow into regular ass bourgeoisie people uh, or they fuck up they fail and end up as as cast down into the ranks of the proles yeah i mean as someone who follows a tons of tons of artists and kind of that artisan class i think it's really interesting to watch a brand kind of grow i mean one into a brand it used to just be like a person posting their shit and then they become a brand and then they start selling stuff and then they get like production deals and you watch as like their their stuff shifts and it's interesting like i've seen some people like reckon with this like i don't want to like exploit workers and like have to you know do all that and then like their prices go way up and then people get mad at them for that and so it's just this horrible like ethical dilemma and it's just like dude i don't don't know what to do about that you on the one hand you want to be successful like we said anybody has to make a living but there's still choices within that i think so i i think from like a an artisan perspective i guess or an artist perspective i i think for me i would way rather have an audience who is like very engaged in like kind of loyal in that way than like become mm-hmm. a mega brand or whatever and have like less control and like shittier work practices like i think there's an argument like I've, I've been thinking a lot about like the intensive versus extensive that we talked about in conquest of bread and i feel that way about like some art too like i, I think it's possible to have like a dedicated kind of following or whatever i guess what i'm saying is you don't not everyone needs to be an empire like you could just be happy with what you have <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a more mm, intense community or a more dedicated community, like you were saying. So yeah, I could see that. I mean, I, that's, that's easy to say, but you know, someone comes with you with like a bajillion dollar deal. You're probably going to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Okay. Question. Where do like regular 
quote unquote regular small businesses who like do employ more people? Where do they fall? Because like, isn't like half of our businesses, small businesses in the United States? Yeah, that would be just bourgeoisie, okay. the owner of that, okay. you know, the man, the same thing with the managers, labor aristocracy and all that all the way down. But yeah, there's, there's wiggle room there, you know, kind of gray areas in, in all of that. Uh, and also, um, like Johnny mentioned, people doing activities that are not associated with their class. So like playing the stock market or, or, or buying crypto, even though you're like a normal worker overall, that doesn't fundamentally change someone's class. They're still, I mean, they might be very, you know, anarcho-capitalist or whatever and be like, oh, I'm, I identify as a, <laughs> as a capitalist, but like, dude, it does, that does, that's not, you're a wannabe, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and that's not to say it's necessarily bad either. Cause tons of workers invest in the stock market passively because of just like retirement and Ugh, stuff. Yeah. That makes me so mad. Like, please don't gamble with my retirement money. <laughs> well, it's like required. I, mean, I you know, know but it just freaks me out. <laughs> they're, they're, I mean, they're still, you know, they have the same class interests, but I guess the mention of like, maybe it shifts their personal interests. It can kind of, we could call it like mystifying them. It can kind of like confuse people as to their real affiliation or their real loyalties, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, in America, we have enough of this with imperialism. Everybody's kind of pro their own exploiters because it's like, yeah, but they give us nice treats. You know, because they steal them from people elsewhere, and that's good kind of for us, you know? I Um, mean, I've heard that argument so many times about how we have iPhones, (laughs) so everything's fine, apparently. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I like the term confuse. I I do see it as, like, like if it's a spectrum, I think it just it shifts them over just, like, you know, 5 or 10%. You know what I mean? Like, eh. It means means you're going to be harder to convince, you know? You're, You're more invested in that system. Okay, yeah. It's like influence lost minus five. <laughs> exactly. Yes. They, <laughs> their scale has shifted. Okay. I can see that. I guess what I mean in terms of the investing and in terms of the crypto, I think that's fine for people to do in general. Like, you know, you could take it easy on your friends if you want. Marx and Engels, for example, both traded in the stock market back when they were around. Well, they weren't it's, perfect. It's not like, I don't know. Well, okay, but it's not a sin. I don't know if we should be in the business of saying like, okay, what is a mortal sin and what is a venial sin for communists? Like, that's not very helpful. My issue with crypto and particularly as an artist, NFTs, is they're like really, oh. really bad for the environment. <laughs> NFT is just really dumb. Yeah. It's also really dumb. And, but what sucks is I'm seeing more and more things pivot to that like brands obviously but even like i think adobe added like an nft export option to their products and it's like man fuck you guys like they're trying to funnel us into this new profit model that like is devastating for the environment so like no thank you yeah how bad is crypto i don't know i mean it's just because people are mining it like with the with the i don't fucking know shit about (laughs) i don't either Is it because people are mining it too much and it like costs too much, you know, they're using too much power? I believe that's the case. Listeners, if you want to correct us, don't because I don't care. (laughs) Well, you could educate us on it. That would be fine. I just, yeah, I guess maybe the solution there isn't necessarily upend, you know, or just destroy crypto or destroy anything that consumes power. We need it. I mean, we need power. Probably need to consume less of it, but... And that's kind of a useless way to consume it. So I guess, yeah. It's, it's like just now's stupid. not the time when the earth is burning. 
Well, crypto is just kind of, it doesn't really have a lot of reason to be in a socialist or communist society. So yeah, it's just not my thing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess it's not inherently bad to, okay. The stock market then, as long as you're not investing in like, you know, defense contractors or really, (laughs) really fucked up stuff. Like it's kind of fine. Like no matter who you're going to invest in, they're going to be assholes in one way or another. It's true. But it's fine to do. You can still, a lot of people won't do this. They'll just invest and who cares because they're not thinking but like it's you can do that and still be a good communist i think it might be harder yeah i mean like i'm i also don't think we should be in the game of saying like here's what you should and shouldn't do because like whatever who the fuck are we yeah so. <laughs> we don't even know about crypto yeah we're works. dummies <laughs> <laughs> i i just hate nfts because like i'm just i'm so sick of it man like it's just it's all over and i'm tired of it <laughs> dude one day you're gonna be Mm-mm. You're going to be producing NFT comics for the metaverse. Absolutely not. Burn my body if that happens. Just kill me. <laughs> I'm going to go in there and and uh, tip you to continue to see your <laughs> metaverse. It's all just such a weird thing, that whole... I mean, that feels... I mean, that's straight Matrix shit, isn't it? That's, it's dystopian. It really yeah. is. Like, please go into the nice virtual world so we can destroy you in the real world. <laughs> it's probably made up though, right? Like they're they're just gonna like drop that like the Facebook glass thing. It was just a distraction. I'm sure it is. They they don't have the tech for that. All right, this is our topical turn. We're we're quickly pivoting away from it. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. All right, people want it. They want topical. Yeah, right. It's a big request. We're here to tease them with it and then not really do it. <laughs> <laughs> do it just a little bit each week, so you have to listen. <laughs> All right. Next, we have a question from Richard, who is a loyal listener. Yeah. And he says, I think you missed the storyline on the Borg in your Star Trek episode. And he thinks they represent capitalism having run amok. Think about how Marx talked about how capitalism gets into everything and takes over and makes it like itself. Capitalism is the Borg. Whoa. Yeah. I was like, oh, mind blown. (laughs) Yeah. We were going in the opposite direction. Our discussion, you know, we were, we were kind of assuming that they were saying, yeah, but this is like the Soviets and it's drab communism. I wonder how much of that is our assumption of, of the writer's politics, <laughs> you know, like it's the United States, it's the eighties. Like we were putting ourselves in their shoes too much. And like maybe saying they were West wing people basically. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Could be. I thought that was a, an interesting take. Cause the thing about Marx's description of capitalism is this insidious thing that just kind of, corrupts all of the things you know um i went to look for it because i I don't remember and i don't remember i don't know precisely if this is what richard is referring to uh, but there's a part in capital where he's describing kind of like the the work day and how the capitalist is always going to try to make more money off of their worker even if like it only takes this amount of time to get the job done they still have them for the whole day so it's like well sorry you suck do more work He said, capital has one single life impulse, the tendency to create value and surplus value, to make its constant factor, the means of production, absorb the greatest possible amount of surplus labor. Capital is dead labor. That vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. Oh, that's good. (laughs) That's spooky. 
Yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. It's, you know, kind of that gothic element definitely. that Marx has because he's in that time. But uh, I don't know. That definitely reminded me of the whole Borg, the visuals of that anyway. Another thing that this reminded me of, um, rethinking the Borg in this capitalist way, is their classic line, resistance is futile. Ooh, yeah. It reminded me of this uh, slogan by friend of the show, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, piss on our grave. <laughs> uh, yeah, one of the worst. <laughs> whose uh, slogan was, there is no alternative. Oh, wow. That is some Darth Vader shit. <laughs> Not to cross the fanfic streams here, but wow. Woof. <laughs> the phrase was used to signify her claim that the market economy is the best, right, and only system that works. <laughs> If you find yourself saying there is no alternative in an ominous tone, maybe take a step back. Look, look at your choices. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, hey, Richard could be right about this, about the Borg capitalism icon. Yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to reckon it with, with capitalism's obsession with, like, individualism and stuff like that. Just to me, at least from an American perspective, that seems like we're very into that. Well, so, but it's not really, right? It's not super individualistic. On a superficial level, let me say that. Yeah. Like, you get to wear what you want and watch whatever millions of shows you want. And, you know, in your, you know, precious few off hours, you can do those things. Maybe it's it's the fact that we've taken all that away because all, you know, the capital has engulfed all those off hours. Yeah, because we're still in kind of, you know... For now, we're still in the growth phase of capitalism. It still s seems to have a place to go, you know, but what happens when it, it gets fewer and fewer avenues for more exploitation or whatever? It starts to just cannibalize itself. Yeah, it becomes full of dystopia. Yeah. Woof. Okay. <laughs> I have that It's capitalism that to. never got stopped. Yeah. You know? Oh, that's weird. Yeah. Because if you think about their goals, it, they're goal is to take over shit which like wow that's super imperialist their goal is to expand that's super capitalist like that kind of cr tracks for me i'm into it endless growth mm-hmm oof okay <laughs> thank you richard that was that's spooky. that was excellent love i it. always love your input yes all right next up we have a question from charlie who is a patron so we absolutely have to take his question shout out to charlie hell yeah he has been thinking about vaccine mandates, and he says, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I got vaccinated as soon as I could, but I was wondering if this is something that could help achieve solidarity. Workers, even though it's a shitty reason, withholding their labor. But leftists are shitting all over them, so I'm wondering how do y'all feel about it? Are we missing an opportunity to say, yeah, working for someone else who can control your whole livelihood is not the best system, and here's an example of why? What do you think? Uh, this, that's a, that's a great question. Um, it's difficult. It's a difficult topic. It is. Because like, you know, we're, we're pro vaccine. <laughs> we both got vaccinated. I mean, go get it, save lives, all that stuff. Absolutely. I just got my booster. It hurt like a motherfucker, but it was worth it. <laughs> Mine was easier than. My arm swelled up so much. It was ridiculous. Wow. It's so wild how they just do different things. Well, different I also, people. I got the flu shot at the same time. Yeah. Oh, but you did them in the in same, the same arm. <laughs> Wow, I did one of each. Well, I wanted to be able to sleep on one side. I'm a side sleeper. Back to <laughs> back to it. I think Charlie's right here. You know, people inherently realize uh, that bosses suck, right? Um, even though there's all this confusion out there, who's a boss, who's not, whatever. 
they can tell like the people that are in charge of their lives that that sucks to have people just like dominate so much of your possibility for well but you can go in one day and just have lost your job and your life's upended i think too from a healthcare perspective like they control your healthcare and they control what kind of benefits they get. They control what kind of doctors you can see, what kind of like psychological help, what kind of like gender affirming care you can access. For me, they have a fucking wellness thing where you have to fill out this form or you get a crazy surcharge. Like there's all kinds of stuff. Wow, yeah. It's so undemocratic. It's so out of your control. And that's the opposite of what we want. We want the people to take control, to run their workplaces, to run society democratically. Not in this bourgeois elect a millionaire to go tell you what to do sort of way, but a true democracy, right? Or a true worker state or commune federation, whatever. And and so I think this question's important because there may be, there is a kernel of, there is a kernel of something to work with, even if it's not about the topic, a topic that we like. Yeah, I think you're right that it does kind of reveal what people are actually uncomfortable about because... If you think about vaccine mandates, you think about it from like the employer standpoint, like, hey, that fucking sucks. Like, I don't think you should be able to tell me what to do with my body or whatever. And then you also think about it from like the state level, like there's been a lot of talk about that. And that also sucks. Like if this decision were being made more democratically, we would be a lot more comfortable with it. But they're made by capitalists, whether it's like government capitalists or business capitalists, like they don't fucking care about us. They're just trying to like get us to keep working. (laughs) Yeah, and that's the thing people are right about is the boss is not doing the mandate for your well-being. They're doing it so they can make a profit. So they don't have to hire more people. (laughs) Yeah, they're they're doing it to keep you alive, to reproduce the labor that they depend on, that they leech off of, because that's their sole goal, right? Just like the Borg. Uh, And I don't know, like, I mean, I, I guess there's a skilled organizer a uh, political organizer or union organizer could use that, could take that and say, and kind of meld that into a bit, a bigger pitch of like, let's unionize, let's take on these fuckers and get this under our control. Because like, so I get it. The question of like, well, what happens if democracy doesn't do what you want it to do? But the whole, like, I mean, have confidence in your ideas, I guess would be my counter. Like, you know, communism or, you know, vaccine mandate or whatever it is, it's, you know, if you think it's correct, then more, you know, you can convince people of it and you can decide it democratically and it'll go your way because it's good. Right. Like, (laughs) yeah, like I, I found it helpful in this question to kind of fast forward mentally to our beautiful, fully automated luxury gay space communism (laughs) and consider like, okay, what would vaccines look like in that society? And for me, it's, it's, again, comes back to mutual agreement. And I think everyone would be like, yeah, we need these. They keep us alive. If you want to be a weirdo who doesn't get vaccinated, I'm sorry, you cannot come in the village. We will kick you out. Like, I don't know what to fucking tell you. (laughs) Right. Or if you want to be, you know, more of a jerk, more of a, a Marxist Leninist worker state, Mm -hmm. authoritarian, whatever you want to call us. (laughs) I mean, you know, you would have the, you know, a democratically controlled government decide the majority will is we're doing this. It's again, you know, it's outlawed to do that. Yeah. I, I, again, I think it's the dissatisfaction doesn't necessarily, I mean, like, yeah, some of it comes from obviously gross misinformation, like fucking get a vaccine, but 
so I think a lot of it comes from that general feeling of just being fucking told what to do by everybody. Being powerless, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, and having the system where you know you cannot affect change, either through, you know, lawmakers or your workplace. Yeah, so do you think, I guess, do you think leftist communists can use that in any sort of useful ways? I think that's going to be a long road to hoe, honestly. <laughs> We've already got a long road to hoe. <laughs> I, I guess maybe, let me rephrase, maybe it's the wrong road to hoe. Like, I just... I don't know. It, it's such a, it's such a complicated topic. I, I just don't think its connection is super obvious. I think if we had to spend like 10 minutes discussing like why it kind of makes sense to be pissed about it in a very careful way, so we don't get people calling us anti-vax, that's going to be a tough sell. Like, I, I just, I think there are bigger issues and more obvious issues and honestly, less ethically gray issues <laughs> to, to, you know, find solidarity around. That's true. Better fights to pick. I think that there is something to be said, like, you know, like we just mentioned about like people being in control. And I, I think it goes back to that whole, the whole QAnon right movement is that sometimes they like stumble on a kernel, <laughs> tiny kernel of truth. You're like, uh -huh. yeah, things are fucked up. I do think the government is like in some conspiracies. And then you like look into that other layer like, oh, no, not that kind, though. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, they're right in, yeah, in several ways. Like, there are crazy pedophiles running around doing crazy shit. For sure. There's like, <laughs> you know, all this sort of fucked up stuff. And their grievances are technically correct of like, yeah, there's a big power structure and it's fucked up. Uh -huh. It's just their yeah. explanations are really incorrect and super racist. Yeah. I guess that's what we think about each other, though, you know, because they just they think that. We have some good points that there are some powerful motherfuckers out there being jerks and we need to do something about it. But we want to, you know, do communism, which is bad. Well, they think we want to be the powerful jerks because they think communism equals authoritarianism. So, OK, maybe it doesn't work. I don't know if that works. I'm not I'm not that nice. <laughs> they don't uh, develop enough analysis on it, I guess. Probably not. But I guess what I'm saying is I, I think even in the question of of questioning vaccines themselves like i understand it from a historical perspective too because like yeah our government has yeah. done bad things with like medicine before clearly like, yeah i get it you know again get the fucking vaccine but yeah 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 i know and i get that people aren't <laughs> dumb necessarily for being hesitant you know all that mm -hmm. there's all this built into it but you're right i think there are more obvious fights too to join in. In my opinion. That said, should we be pro-employer vaccine mandates? Ugh. Is that a world you're in versus world you want question? Yeah, I think so. If it's world I'm in, I'm like, yeah, sure. But you better like give people time off to go get it. Give people sick leave if they need it. If like they have a reaction or something or just feel like shit. Because a lot of people do. I, I mean... Here's the thing. I, I get really upset whenever there are mandates about like wellness benefits and things like that. And it's like, if you're going to do that, you better like cover the rest of my health care too. <laughs> if you're going to tell me to like yeah. be healthy, you should probably help me be healthy. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing of it is, it's a decision made to increase the profit of the employer. It, it doesn't really matter what we think about it. Like, it's not a oh, democratic yeah. decision. So yeah, they don't give we a don't. Fuck. Like taking a position on it is honestly just posturing. It, it's not, you know, what we do need to take a position on is unionizing people into 
a large enough critical mass that we can do something about it to to change their minds, you know, directly. Yeah, yeah. Our next question comes from Jim, um, who actually is Viet American, and they listened to our Vietnam episode and had a question about the Hue Massacre. Um, And they say they have a friend whose family is from that area and said she didn't know anyone who knew of this atrocity committed by the North Vietnamese Army. And they sent us an article discussing it and wanted to see if you could look into it. Did you look into this article? I did. I didn't read it because I'm a good co-host. Good co-host. Yeah, that's what we say. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) <laughs> All right, yeah, the article in question is titled The Myth of the Huey Massacre. I think that's how you say it. Oops. By Edward Herman and Gareth Porter. His name is Edward Herman? Edward Herman, yeah. Like the actor? <laughs> Perhaps, but this is not an actor. That's the name of the actor who plays the grandpa on Gilmore Girls. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> R.I.P. Um, well, this is like a... A different guy. A scholar, Yeah. An economist. He uh, he looks like he could be an economist. He co-wrote um, "Manufacturing Consent" with oh. Noam Chomsky. Oh, I'm I'm now going to pretend that Rory's grandfather co-wrote "Manufacturing Consent." <laughs> no, he's like a rich that... insurance guy. There's no way. Okay, I was going to say I don't know how that fits into the story. What if it does? Like maybe there's a reading where he's secretly subversive. <laughs> I hope so. I'm going to look <laughs> for it now. We were wrong about the Borg, so could be. Who knows? All right, so I looked into this uh, article and, in more broadly speaking, took another look at the Huey Massacre. Okay. Can you remind me what that was? Yeah. Um, the Battle of Huey started in, on January 31st, 1968. It was part of a, the larger Tet Offensive, and the Communist Forces, the People's Army of Vietnam, uh, and the National Liberation Front, the uh, what people call the Viet Cong, overran the city pretty quickly, but then it was retaken over like a month long battle um, by the U.S. uh, and the South Vietnam, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam forces. And uh, the massacre part was that what we initially said on on the show was kind of the official kind of the U.S. backed record of what happened, which was that the communists, when they when they captured Huey, uh, they executed a large number of people uh, in a massive and systematic purge. Uh, like they had death lists of people they were going to kill. Arvin officials, the, the army, the South Vietnamese army officials or U.S. sympathizers or anybody who was resisting or class enemies, this sort of thing. And they just, you know, took the place out. And then they find mass graves afterward, and they're like, this is what the communists did. All right. I assume that was on my list of strikes. I don't think I was keeping strikes for that episode, but I probably was not a fan of that. I think we sort of mentioned it in passing a little bit or okay. said, like, this was this was one of the you know, atrocities sort of thing. Yeah. Upon reading this article and then doing some more investigations around it, because I didn't want to just use one source or whatever, it does look like the events around the alleged... Huey Massacre are kind of, they're more controversial for sure than I initially thought. And ultimately ends up kind of hazy in terms of specifics. There's lots of gaps like that we just don't know. Contradicting reports, different eyewitness accounts of the same events, um, war can, in general, 
be very difficult to get exactly right in terms of what happened because, you know, because of all that. Yeah, it's messy. Yeah. But like we said, the communists are actually kind of quickly able to take control of Hue in the first place. They kind of infiltrate it to begin with, and then the South Vietnamese army just crumbles and, and runs away pretty much immediately. They, they, they take it super fast. It's part of the overall Tet Offensive, which was this huge push across all of Vietnam to, to take over all of this, the South to a massive offensive. Then there's that month-long battle, and it's a brutal fight. Uh, lots of casualties on both sides, militarily, and lots of civilian casualties. The city gets leveled. The Oof. city gets like just completely devastated. Uh, more than 90% or nearly around 90% of it's destroyed by airstrikes and artillery by the United States. Oh, God. Okay. So kind of we were doing a bit of the massacring, sounds like. Uh, that's the thing is that there's a lot of, you know, there's going to be a lot of civilian deaths that also are coming from the airstrikes and the artillery. Like those aren't super accurate Mm-mm. things back then. Yes. They but, have a yeah. little, they have radar guiding and stuff, but like it's not pinpoint or anything. But if it's a city, you know, you're not out in like a battlefield. This is a city. Yeah. And even when you're out in a battlefield piloting the drone specifically yourself, sometimes you hit wedding parties. Like, Oh yeah. That also still happens. You're, uh, yeah. You're not guaranteed to be hitting not civilians just yep. because you're accurate. A couple months after the battle was when they find these mass graves. And that's where the story first comes out. And that's when we were saying that's kind of the official story that we mentioned uh, on the show. But the source that Jim shared with us here points out that the sources for that official story are pretty suspect. Okay. Who, who was telling the goss? So the primary source documents that originally said there was this massacre uh, came from the South Vietnamese Army's uh, 10th Political Warfare Battalion. It's a crazy name. Uh, they had a track record for forging documents to make their enemies look bad. They kind of, you know, work for the South Vietnamese <laughs> Army. I mean, if you're named the Political Warfare Battalion, yeah, I think you kind of play dirty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's, you know, okay. Uh, one big source about the Hue Massacre and about Vietnam more generally because uh, he later becomes a historian on the subject is a guy named Douglas Pike. And he was big in ta- in first doing the, the report about this, but he was doing that report and he was doing his work for the U S information agency, which was a government propaganda agency from 1953 <laughs> to 1999. How have I never heard of this? Uh, they are just, they're, they're like, it's a mega PR firm. Basically. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just constantly putting it. I, I don't know. Like, cause it was, it's also kind of like in the background, I guess. Cause I hadn't heard of it either. Really weird. Yeah. But it's a, it's a real thing. That was a real thing. Um, and some of their like holdovers and stuff like voice of America radio and stuff like that has just been cut. It's disbanded now, but it's been like those sorts of parts have been put into other government organizations. Uh, but Douglas Pike comes out there and he's like, Oh, we've got these captured NLF documents, you know? So these captured enemy documents that supposedly back up the story where they say, Oh, we killed these people. We did this and that again, he's working for the, U.S. propaganda department <laughs> later admitted that at the time he was, quote, engaged in a conscious effort to discredit the Viet Cong. Cool. Great. 
I mean, he worked for the U.S. government, so I mean, this is kind of who he's working for. Uh, but the the documents are alleged to say that, and in the article that Jim shared with us, the authors kind of point out that like this translation of uh, that they give, we eliminated, you know, this many people or whatever. It's immediately claimed to be like executed, but the wording like isn't necessary. It's more like a neutralized sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Which doesn't, you know, that doesn't always uh, excuse it. Because like, you know, cops will be like, oh, we neutralized whatever. <laughs> we, we blew someone's head off. So not to say, but that I was mean, a... the U.S. Information Agency is a propaganda agency. Like that's that's some wordsmithing if I ever saw it. <laughs> it's just yeah, information. So I, so I found that interesting. Now, you know, okay, going back to sources, the source of this article, Edward Herman and Gareth Porter, they're both staunchly anti-war, anti-imperialists. You know, they're trying to defend one side and attack another side. I get it. But I think that their criticisms of those, like, let's look deeper, let's not just trust the source, that's kind of sheds some interesting light. I it's think. a good instinct. Yeah. There's also some other evidence that they bring up. The mass graves... Uh, apparently it does seem from what I can find that reporters weren't allowed to go see that in the article, they say, you know, that this one guy was denied access and then later they were going to fly someone in, but then it was like unsafe to do so. So people don't get to like investigate what's going on there. They just kind of have to take official yeah, official say so for it. Okay. Doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it is, I guess, suspicious. It's a little sus. But another big deal, I think, is besides kind of the source, the information sources, which is really, you know, really questionable. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty suspect. <laughs> um, is just the situation. And I do want to credit this uh, line of analysis here uh, to a the late journalist Wilfred Burchett, mm-hmm. uh, who is an Australian uh, communist, and he was actually doing reporting from among the NLF fighters. So he was there with like the communist uh, guerrilla forces. Yeah. Weren't the Australians like really involved in like Southeast Asian reporting because they're like, Hey, we're here. Like this is fucked up. Uh huh. I remember Noam Chomsky talked about that in in manufacturing consent. Yeah. Uh, so, so his, you know, one of the things I was reading this article by him who was talking about this and he says, look, this is a, a month-long bombardment, there's house-to-house fighting, you know, it is hellish, it's just brutal, you know, and there's bodies piling all up all over the place, the NLF is, he says, they're just burying these things at night, even while the bar- artillery is going on, trying to get any cover they can to just, cl- you know, clean all this horrible mess off the streets and everything, you know, it makes sense they have to be buried, but what doesn't make sense would be, okay, why would the communists who are fighting a people's war against a foreign invader going to massacre 10% of the population that they, of the city they take over. Yeah. That's not a good look. I mean, if you can understand the war as this struggle for national liberation with a defined enemy, the United States killing a bunch of your own people doesn't seem to add too much to your, your cause. That's a good point. Yeah. Cause it's like, it would be pretty easy to get the people on your side. Like, Hey, look, those people are like shooting guns at us. Maybe we should do something about that. Yeah. And what makes a lot more sense is that the indiscriminate bombing of the United States killed all those people, killed a lot of people. 
that had to be buried. Now, from what I can tell, it does look like the communists did do some executions when they took the city. Uh, South Vietnam officials uh, and their main collaborators, who they see as traitors, they probably round them up and kill them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, this does seem to have happened, uh, even according to official Vietnamese histories, like yeah. from the government of Vietnam. Yeah, they're like, yeah, we did that. Started as North Vietnam, you know. They go back and say, we executed some people when we took this place. There also do seem to have been many civilians killed at Hue. Some of these were likely killed by communist forces. Uh, Vietnamese leaders have admitted that, of course, you know, individual soldiers probably made some mistakes and killed people. There are also accounts um, from former officers who said that in when they started to lose the city, some units like in their panic of what the fuck do we do with these prisoners just shot a bunch of them while they were leaving, you know? Yeah. Um, There's there's conflicting, I guess, kind of accounts of, of. whether it's that or just kind of people going crazy or there's also official histories that say uh, that the people in Huey took up arms themselves and went after their old, you know, their old enemies, whoever the assholes were in town. When the NLF come in, they're like, Hey, this guy, you know, and they, you know, they take out people like that, this sort of popular red terror sort of thing. Yeah. You'd be like, well, I fucking hate my neighbor. Let's, let's call him a traitor. Right. I think lots more were likely killed in the American airstrikes and the artillery bombardments. I mean, we talked about it in that episode. They were indiscriminately bombing entire zones of the country saying like, this is a free for all zone. So like, it's not out of the out of reality to think that. Right. And initially they go into this with like a lot of restrictions. We can't bomb. We can't do airstrikes because Hue is this uh, cultural this this historic city and it's really been spared a lot of the horror of war up to that point and then at some point they were like this is terrible house to house fighting we're sending in the airstrikes and they just started going crazy wow zoom back out i'm not certain you know i'm certain that Mm -hmm. i'm not certain i guess (laughs) (laughs) in conclusion uh. yeah so to me it definitely looks like the story we told the official story it's not sufficiently explanatory Mm -hmm. doesn't quite add up it looks like probably the communist forces did way fewer executions than they're accused of. This is what I would sum up. And ultimately I think whatever they end up doing pales in comparison by like an order of magnitude to the wanton destruction wrought by the invading United States. Yeah. Yeah. Again, indiscriminate killing zones. What did they call them? Fires? Free fire zones. Free fire. Yeah. Yeah. You're Ugh. close with free for all. <laughs> Free for all. I was <laughs> that's say where fire they like zones. take a helicopter of soldiers that don't like each other and they drop them in there. It's like, oh, dudes, <laughs> just <laughs> just super Smash Brothers brawl, but really high stakes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I mean, the United States, you know, killed millions of Vietnamese people, uh, exposed millions of them with Agent Orange. Oh yeah. Multi generational devastation destroyed millions of hectares of the forest, burned countless villagers, villages and villagers to the ground. Not to mention the death and destruction that they brought to neighboring countries like Laos and Cambodia. There should not be civilians massacred. But when I look at the Vietnam War, it's clear to me that the communists weren't the monsters. They weren't the bad guys. Even if sometimes they do execute some people, or even if they did some of, you know, probably way smaller than what they're talking about here, but if they did some of that, 
that is not good. But I think that there it's it's not really weighing down the scale compared to what else is happening. That is mass levels, like you said, multi generational destruction, environmental destruction, just it it's like a genocide, man. Like it's just incalculable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't want it to be seeming like we're totally excusing one side just because they happen to agree with us on things. But, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I think it's important to look at scale here. I think it is important to zoom out and see, you know, one side did way more killing. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, killing, like, you go at, like, for what? You know, one side was fighting to expel an invader and the other side was the invader yeah yeah what are you gonna do they didn't need to be there yeah exactly next we have a question from gabriel and gabriel asks basically about veganism he's 25 and uh, for most of his life didn't think about the consumption of animal or animal derived products and you know had kind of the classic approach of vegetarians and vegans seem kind of preachy and extreme (laughs) Uh, A few months ago, he learned about veganism and really sees it as an extension of the anti-exploitation concept to all sentient beings, uh, especially mammals that are in so many ways similar to us. Basically, it's the idea that we shouldn't treat living sentient social beings as property or a resource to make profit of. And of course, with this understanding, I could not help but to think that veganism has way more in common with anti-capitalist and leftist concepts in general than we might think. Mm. So yeah, he basically wants to know what we think and... I gotta say, sounds pretty good to me. And, you know, I think we can all agree the the current system of food consumption is like super unethical, unhealthy, bad for the environment, just all around bad. Yeah, that's. Mm-hmm. I think the whole the whole real left should be able to yeah. believe that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're against factory farms. You know, the untold amount of climate damage and water usage and land usage, all that shit sucks. Um, you know, the Monsanto company sucks. <laughs> All that stuff sucks. Like everything from, from plant to animal, not great how we're doing that. I do push back sometimes against veganism and vegetarianism just because I think meat has an important place culturally for a lot of people, including myself. But that being said, I think we could cut way the fuck back. Like nobody needs meat every day. Like it's just... Or at all, actually. Or at all, technically. (laughs) I I think my anarcho-communist roots feels uncomfortable being like, well, you can't have this, you know. But sure, yeah. You know, I I don't want to regulate that in any way, but I I agree that it makes more sense for the planet and for, like, production to to cut back and to find a way to, like, sustainably and humanely practice farming – and I, I really like how Gabriel puts it as, as not seeing animals as a resource to make profit of. I think even shifting that mindset is huge. Like, I think we could just, that should be how we treat the earth in general. Yeah. It's very eco. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think to me, this reminded me a lot of Conquest of Bread, because this was one of the issues I had with it was he was getting so excited about how much we could produce and he talked about like intensive versus extensive agriculture. The idea of right now we're doing a lot of extensive agriculture, just more, more, more. And, you know, we could switch that to intensive of like, okay, we're going to grow as much as possible in this one section and really take care of the land and, you know, really make sure it's being well treated and all that stuff. 
And he kind of applies the same logic to animal raising, which in some ways I'm like, yeah, that's good because you're reducing the quantity. I'm, I don't know. He was confusing about it because he was talking a lot about land usage of like, oh, we could fit way more cows in a smaller area. And I'm like, I don't think that's good for the cows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's just a product of the times. But I, I think if you take that same general idea, maybe not be so literal about like the land usage part and more of like, it's it's more about intensive and that we're really taking care of the animal and they're like have a pretty happy life and are like healthy and not like pumped full of antibiotics and hormones and all this crazy shit like yeah that would is going to be more expensive but which will reduce our consumption but that's also fine yeah i don't you know I would say I don't think like with the antibiotics and the hormones and stuff I think that's like excluded from the food supply in some way there's if it ever gets that, it can't be, can't be one of the ones. So when they say like, oh, this is hormone free, it's like, yeah, but that's how all of them, because they just can't do that. Um, I don't know. I've heard this somewhere that like, that's not, that's one of those marketing things. Oh, okay. You know, it's like you buy cider or something. It's like gluten free. Oh yeah. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. Duh. <laughs> well, duh. <laughs> but I like this idea of this being a better way to exist or I definitely think about the making a profit. That's a good point is that, you know, obviously we want to banish just, we we don't want the exploitation of man by man anymore. So we don't want to be anyone to be making, you know, doing profits, stealing. It's gone. (laughs) Yeah. We don't want people stealing people's labor, you know, and, and ripping people off in that way. So I guess we don't want to keep animals that are like, just solely being leached off of? I don't know. Like, it's, this is getting very moralist. Moralist. I think it's kind of almost like the traditional husbandry kind of thing of like, it's like a symbiotic relationship, I guess, which is You're kind talking, of fucked up. This is like Harvest Moon. Like, you go out and be nice <laughs> to it, and it's your best friend, but also it gives you some milk. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Like... Because, yeah, I, I've I've read these kind of arguments that are like, yeah, you can be humane as you want to the animal, but, like, you're still going to kill it at the end of the day, which is pretty rough. I get it from meat. And honestly, my personal view on it, and I don't put this on anybody, mm-hmm. is I feel kind of bad about meat consumption. Me too. And so we've really cut back on that because I just had this existential... <laughs> this is stupid. <laughs> you can cut this if you need to, but I had this existential sort of, like... Should we just, should we be vegetarian? Like, should we not eat? Because, like, you know, think about, like, why, you know, pigs are kind of smart. Pigs are so smart. They're like dogs, and they're cute. You're just raising them just to be killed so we can eat. And I was just going down this whole, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Because I, I, like, feel bad about killing spiders, man, and stuff. I just get, you know, the Janists, they, you know, cover their mouths so they don't breathe in bugs. And they walk on the path so they don't step on ants and it's just like yeah i guess everything does kind of exist and you don't want to smite it out just for no reason anyway that was my line of thinking and i'm just (laughs) like maybe i'm just going to be complete but we've only managed to be like you know 10 percent, maybe we've really cut it back you know but it's like Mm -hmm. 10 20 percent or so sometimes meat so i don't know i guess morally i get where it's like feeling bad about eating meat because you're killing something when you don't really need to but I don't know about the animal products. That's the thing. It's like dairy cows, they got a pretty nice life. They're pampered, really. And you don't <laughs> kill them at the end of the day. You're just taking care of something. They have to do anyway. And yeah, uh, so that's 
Maybe that's short-sighted. Especially like when people are about it like honey. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> like, I, I don't have any moral feelings about honey. I, I hope I get emails like actually honey is really bad for bees <laughs> or something. Well, honey um, can't be really bad for well, bees. Well, no, cultivating uh, harvesting, honey. Yeah, harvesting honey. No, I, I think I push back from it, I think, more from a cultural standpoint is my thing. Because I am mostly familiar with with what is kind of termed as white veganism of of a very preachy method. Mm. I think in the United States, at least, I, I don't recall if Gabriel says where he's from, but in the United States, at least, there's there's this big movement to, I mean, there was and still is this big movement to like towards veganism. And it ends up kind of shaming cultures that use meat. And it's like icky. <laughs> and, I and, and you get, and it also touches on like health arguments too and things like that. And it just gets to this point where it's like, well, we all should be eating, you know, quinoa and, you know, baked sweet potatoes and whatever. All yes. these food that's like, man, like my grandmother would never make that. Like, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> right. But if you think about it, there is a different way, I guess, to do, and it's not, you know, sexy or marketable. <laughs> but there's a different way to do vegetarianism. Veganism is, you know closer to what peasant indigenous communities and stuff would eat, which is not really heavily, you know, meat, especially red meat or, or, but like, you know, meat based. Yeah. Because for most of human like existence, we didn't eat that much meat because like it was expensive. That's, that's true. And like, even like I gave the example of quinoa, like that's a fucking indigenous grain. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think I just have that initial squeamishness around it because I, I don't do well with food rules just for my personal baggage. And so um, I struggle with them. But I, I think it's great if you try to eat less meat. I hope to do that as well. I think I, I often am accidentally vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm for it. I don't think we should mandate it, but I think it's a good idea for the climate and ethically as well. I am very purposefully vegetarian or, you know, cutting back at least because I very much identify with Gabriel's statement about really loving steaks and burgers. That's me. And if it's just like casual, I'm not thinking about it. I'm going to be eating meat with every meal. Here's the thing. Here's the secret. You got to be bad at cooking meat. That's my secret. I'm too good at cooking meat. I'm, (laughs) I got the skills. So I can't, I cooked chicken the other day and it wasn't all the way done. I fucking suck at it. Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. bad. Get a meat thermometer. Um, I have no, one. Don't get a meat thermometer. Go vegetarian. <laughs> um, no, but okay. So you're saying about not mandating it, right? This works well if you're doing the Federation of Communes. It's fine because you can just make a different commune that is the meat eaters commune. Oh. You know, you have a friend over there and you go see them once a month and get the real good stuff, you know, <laughs> but you, you, you come back and, and live your good and moral life. <laughs> but. If we're not following that path or, mm-hmm. you know, what, you know, in the interim, I mean, let's deal with a big, huge problem we've got right now, the climate. You may need to just be like, hey, sorry, we're going to survive. No one's going to eat meat products for this amount of time, whatever. That's true. Like when I say I'm against mandates like that, in this case, I, I could definitely see you mandating it for a, a temporary measure of like, OK, we have to renew this mandate every like year or something to make sure we still need to do it. But like. Let's do it because, you know, the earth is on fire and maybe like we can give up burgers for a year so we can put that out. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, that would be in the 
in the imperial countries or the highly consuming countries, right? Like you don't, no one would be sending the world police out to go make sure that, you know, the ranchers in a very rural area of the world are not, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) How dare you? You you would be like shutting down Tyson is what that would look like. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Which is probably a good call anyway. That's a good question. I like the I like this idea. Do you think this should be more mm, centrally located within the left movements, uh, or is it too much like an option? Too much like do your thing. Ah, uh, I I think again I'm going back to my answer. If there's, I'm sorry, maybe bigger fish to fry here. Not to make a food pun here. <laughs> Don't fry but. the fish. Fish aren't smart, <laughs> but still. Fish aren't smart, but that's fine. factory or farming. You know, fish farming it can be bad. Fish farming can the be ecology. bad. The ecology, it can. The ecology. That's my biologist's <laughs> answer here. <laughs> the ecology, <laughs> love it. No, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't know if this is a good way to onboard people necessarily. Maybe if you know someone who is vegan or vegetarian, and like Ooh, okay. you think this could be a way to get them, but I don't see us attracting new people who aren't already vegan or vegetarian with this line of thinking well that's a good point so it's like outreach where it applies like this is kind of like what you do but it's not we shouldn't use it to because basically you'd just be kicking people out with this i mean yeah you'd be like excuse me you're not vegetarian you're not growing the movement with this uh, except for the rare you know these circumstances where you can but yeah like i i could see you know gabriel mentions you know, the, the meat and dairy industries are like super powerful and manipulative. Like a lot of people can see that and be like, hey, that's fucked up. Even non-vegans and vegetarians like meat eaters can absolutely see that too. So Yeah, that's true. I think it's fair to bring up questions of our food supply in general. For oh, sure. Yeah. Like that's a fucking problem. <laughs> and it's eye opening too, because it's something that people have intimate connections with and like really, you know, want to feel good about. I remember back in the day I watched Food Inc. Oh, remember when that was super hot? <laughs> yeah, and it's like it's you know, it's not it doesn't have anything crazy, you know, insane takes but the, at the time it was like Whoa. It was huge. Yeah. yeah. You know, maybe it probably doesn't get everything right, but it's still kind of like it makes people th- you know, makes people question. Definitely. There's a great book out there called Fear of Food, which is really interesting too. I think Kyle had to read it for like a culinary class actually and i i borrowed it and read it and it was really interesting too about like how much of our regulations are just like lobbyists <laughs> mm, yeah so yeah check that out if you want to read about food which i always do <laughs> yeah i felt this was a very you question it was <laughs> okay final question is a big one <laughs> all right this one's been haunting me so this is from wyatt and he says I listened to you guys talk about Labor Day and more specifically about unionizing. You guys said that you didn't want to be the ones organizing the socialist revolution, which is completely understandable. But I am (laughs) curious, at what point of an organized revolution would you two make that leap of faith to leave your jobs if need be? We all are communists in private and comfortable spaces, but not publicly. When is the right time to be upfront about our beliefs? If we aren't, how will we ever organize and have the revolution we all dream of? Grady, you're first. Defend your communism. Honestly, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I really agree with Wyatt's point. Like, a lot of us are too scared to devote ourselves fully to the revolutionary cause. I mean, like, I don't have a... 
response to that that is not based in cowardice. I know that's what it is. It's, I'm too selfish. Why should I risk so much? Especially because, you know, everything looks so far off. Like, why, you know, why should I be the one who takes that loss for no reason? And that's not good. That's not good. That's, that's not, <laughs> not a good look. Right. Yeah. And I think why it's right that like, if we don't ever do something like before stuff is clearly popping off. If we all just say, you know, well, we're, we're waiting for the right moment, waiting for when we're it's all good. waiting for someone else to talk first. Yeah. If no one ends <laughs> up taking that leap, uh, without someone doing the dedicated revolutionary work that we have seen throughout history is really the only way that stuff gets done, then what? We're never going to have that revolution to join. I, I feel pretty similarly. I guess I, I question, like, what is <laughs> what is the move? Because is it that you, you quit your job today and do mutual aid full time and you're just constantly out there agitating? Like, how you will die. Like, I don't know. I guess there's people that do that. But like, damn. That sounds hard. Well, it can be very hard. We've, like, how do you survive? You could rob banks. That's what the Bolsheviks banks. <laughs> Have you tried robbing banks? Just kidding, NSA. Get out of this call. What are you doing here? They're here every time. They're here they every are. time. They got to get this stuff somehow. I'm sure. But, uh, I mean, it can be a very tenuous existence. If you're doing things right, if you're doing things that genuinely threaten the system... You ain't going to be around. Yeah, then it's going to mobilize <laughs> against you and make your life really fucking difficult. All right. In, in the old times, right, this is uh, people getting exiled repeatedly or targeted for assassinations or straight up assassinated mm-hmm. in the case of Fred Hampton. Mm-hmm. It's not good. <laughs> uh, but if you I mean, you know, but you could be successful. You know, you, you could pull it off. Yeah. I mean, I think the difficult part here is that I think we've talked a lot about how the revolution requires mass action. Mm-hmm. And the key word to that, I believe, is mass. Yeah. And sure, you have to start somewhere. But like, I I don't know if me quitting my job right now and running around like <laughs> yelling about this is going to necessarily do that much. I mean, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I don't I don't know if we're there yet, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if the culture is there yet. I, I think we're, we're definitely seeing lots of, like, labor movements and agitation right now, and that's fucking great. Um, I think we're seeing more awareness of it. I think, like, in my conversations, particularly with, like, younger people, like, they're fucking on board, and, like, that's awesome. I mean, I, I guess to, like, answer, like, his question about, like, when would that happen... I mean, one, I, I would push back just a smidge because okay. like I'm I'm a very online person and like I'm pretty publicly communist. Like <laughs> it's it is not hard. Like, yeah, uh, like people don't know about it at my work, but that's because they don't fucking care yeah. <laughs> about me. Like they're they're not interested in me as a human. Um, <laughs> but it's like not hard to find if you Google my name or if you just like go to my Instagram, like it's right there in the bio mm-hmm. and like. And I'm writing a middle grade graphic novel. So like that banned book list is just, there's a spot waiting for me. I can't wait for it. <laughs> so, you know, like I, I am fairly open about it. And 
I'm less so open at work, obviously, because like that's not a super safe place to be open. I, I like to push back when I can, you know, I'm like, hey, we should like respect people's time off and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then as far as like when I would leave my job, I think it'd have to be that that big old general strike we've been dreaming of, you know, like it would have to be it'd have to be something pretty big, I think. <laughs> it'd have to be obvious. Yeah. All right. And uh, I don't want to like end this question with like us patting ourselves on the back, but like. I don't know. I, what makes me feel better is that we do get a lot of emails, particularly from young people who are like, hey, like, I found this podcast and like, I'm, I'm a leftist now. Like, thank you. And like, nice. like, one person was like, you guys always say you don't do anything. And like, I just want you to know that you do. And I was so sweet. Aww. Like, Thank you. Oh, that was Della. So, oh, from DFW. What's up? Shout out to Della. Thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, I'm not just saying that to like make myself feel better, although that's always nice, (laughs) (laughs) but I, I do think that it's important to educate people on these issues. So like we were talking about in like the first question, like people have that class consciousness. So hopefully we're doing a little bit of that. Maybe one way we could synthesize these two together is by unionizing by starting to organize things or by taking a job where they already have a union and transforming that working like, you know, getting not just like joining the leadership, but getting like-minded people to, and like running a whole slate of people to like take over and do the radical stuff instead. I mean, if you look back at the times when it didn't look like we were going in a socialist direction, I mean, if you're looking at the gilded age, that's still the time when like the socialist party of America was on the rise and you had, how was that on the rise was through militant labor unions. I mean, through Eugene Debs, the guy that runs for president multiple times, he starts out in the labor union movement. Yeah, for sure. Like that's how you get things like the communist party USA being like a huge part of the population. That's how we got the new deals. Cause we were out there in the streets yelling about it. Yeah. So, and and then that's a way that you're making a living that, but you're agitating for more and raising class consciousness too of people. Yeah. I do have a plug here. Ooh. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> one small way I'm going to be getting more involved is I've actually been invited to speak at the North Texas DSA meeting. So this Ooh. comes out this Thursday. So yeah, you if you are listening to this, you might still be able to make it. It is Sunday, November 14th. Um, so look up the North Texas chapters uh, general meeting time and I will be there. I'm gonna be giving a, a lecture, a, kind of a, an abbreviated version of our lecture on the Federal Art Project. And then I'll be hosting a workshop where we're gonna like make art together. So if you wanna go to that, you should. Sweet. <laughs> If you like go to that and like are a podcast listener, I will be so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you for that question, Wyatt. Yeah. No, thanks to all of our listeners for these great questions. Yeah. I love these. Yeah. We had a particularly good batch this time. Our other batches were good too. (laughs) (laughs) They were. They were. I'm sorry. Past listeners, if you send in questions, we still love you. You're just as important and special. (laughs) Yeah. Hey. As a teacher, you cannot pick favorites. Oh, you still do, though. But you, yeah, but you cannot show favorites. <laughs> you can pick them. You just can't tell anybody. Right. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> All right. What are we doing next week? Uh, next week, we will be taking a trip back in time and across the world, from our perspective anyway, 
That's our time machine. <laughs> that's a that's a good time machine. <laughs> Did you like it? Yeah. Thanks. To the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. Ooh, okay, let's do it. This has been requested a few times, I think. Yeah, so we'll be talking a bit about the country's coming into existence and especially focusing in on what's called the Soviet-Afghan War. I don't know anything about it. Well, it was a mess, so we'll talk about it. I know that one piece of footage with, like, tanks and... The tanks on the road, right? Yeah, I think so. They always show the tanks on the road. It's some stock footage that they show B-real mm-hmm. news footage. I don't know anything. This this is all tangential stuff. Like, you know, when you're watching a movie and they're like, well, we got to show what time period it is, so we'll show a bit of the news. Like, that's how much I know about it. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's uh, it's uh, Charlie Wilson's war thing. I hated that movie because, oh, I'm sorry, listeners. I, well, it's stupid, but. Oh, okay, good. Um <laughs> I uh, inexplicably hate Julia Roberts. I just, I don't like her face. I just don't trust her. That's not right. Okay. Yeah. Bad take. Um. I know. I know. You can come after me if you want. I will ignore it, but it's fine. You can still tell me. (laughs) All right. So yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk all about that and the mess that it was. And yeah, we'll just get into it. All right. See you then. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.